Welcome to The Breakdown with Brad Corp and Becky, a weekly podcast that breaks down politics, policy, and current affairs. I'm Becky Scher. And I'm Michael Broadcorp. We are here again with a panel discussion with our dedicated panelists for all things debate and presidential campaigns. Once again, we are pleased to be joined by Representative Walter Hudson. Hudson is in his first term in the Minnesota House and represents Albertville, Otsego, and St. Michael area. Also with us today is GOP strategist and operative John Rouleau. John has long been active in Republican politics and currently serves as executive director of the Minnesota Jobs Coalition. And our third panelist is Priya Samsundar. Priya has worked for the MNGOP and the RNC and is a messaging pro. And as a reminder and full disclosure, Priya is currently working on behalf of Nikki Haley's presidential super PAC. It has been a big week and is a big week to come. This week, there was a debate between Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis, which Donald Trump held in town hall during. Chris Christie dropped out of the race and had a hot mic moment. With our panelists, we are going to break down the debate and what impact, if any, it had on the state of the race. But we're going to spend the majority of this episode breaking down all things Iowa caucus. We will discuss the history of the event and how it works. We will break down the different campaigns and how they have approached the Iowa caucus. And we will end by breaking down the significance of the Iowa caucus and our predictions for the coming weeks and months. Thanks for joining us and enjoy the show. Thank you all for being with us today to break thing down all things Iowa caucuses. So Iowa caucuses are this upcoming Monday, January 15th. They are the first official event in the Republican nomination process. So we are going to start by just breaking down a bit of the background of Iowa caucuses and how caucuses are different than primaries. Michael, as somebody who worked for the state party, has been around politics at at a bunch of different levels, do you want to hit us off with the basics of what and how caucuses are different than a primary? A great question, Becky. Caucuses and primaries are both used by political parties to determine who the final candidates will be. In this particular instance, we're going to talk about caucuses for a second. On Monday night in Iowa, on a very cold night, which will factor into the participation and could impact the final results, Iowans will meet roughly 7 o'clock at night all across the state, and there will be meetings where voters will come in and show their support of candidates in a very public way. Some instances, they'll be done by raising hands, breaking into groups, and having discussions about those candidates. People will fill out their names, fill out their candidates' names on ballots. Those will be tabulated, and we will get some form of idea as to who has, which candidate has gotten the most support that night. And so it is a very open process in terms of the discussions. It's a meeting process. It's all conducted at roughly the same time at seven o'clock, and those meetings will go on for the balance of the evening. And so by the end of the night, through a caucus process, We'll have an idea of which candidates have won the delegate support. Primaries are a little different. They're generally direct the select they're the direct selection of candidates. And so primary elections are partisan elections, or it's a way to winnow down the candidates. It's very much like a general election. You go in that day, there's voting all throughout the day, you fill out a secret ballot, and then those votes are tabulated all throughout the day. Whereas voting occurs all throughout the day, and particularly in Minnesota primary elections and general elections are all-day events. The caucuses down in Iowa will start at 7 o'clock at night, and that's when the meetings will start. And so it's a all throughout. It's not an all-throughout-the-day process. It begins, that meeting starts at that night. It's a very interesting process. It is somewhat, I would think, in large sense, somewhat dated in terms of its, its significance, in terms of how it's discussed. And we'll get more into kind of the history of the Iowa caucuses and why they've become so relevant in this process, particularly on the Republican side. But it's in terms of the level of participation, 
it's much more of a time commitment to participate in a caucus meeting than it is to vote in a primary. A caucus meeting is a process. You have to commit to a, a amount of time and to show up at seven o'clock at night and pop into a meeting. It's just not a pop in and pop out type situation where you have in primary voting. Caucuses are more of kind of meetings which allow participants to show their support for their candidates. Primaries are much more of what I think people think about in terms of voting. You go into a ballot box and you cast a ballot. And so we'll see how both those both of those processes are part of the overall nomination process that both the Democrats and the Republicans will have this year as they had in other presidential cycles. And uh, I look forward to hearing to the discussion from our guests about Monday's uh, very chilly Iowa caucus. Before we get into the historical context here of Iowa, I'll just break down a little bit of the caucuses are conducted by the state parties. There is official party business here in Minnesota. We still have caucuses, even though we are relatively new to the presidential primary. It appears this year in twenty or in twenty twenty, only five states: Iowa, Kentucky, Nevada, North Dakota, and Wyoming had the caucuses. So we're going to be sitting here for the next couple of weeks, months, playing along as the caucuses and primaries go through. There is obviously a lot of conversations about primaries versus caucuses and which ones are better and why primaries are seen by some is more accessible. You can, like you say, vote by absentee ballot in person, More caucuses are dedicated, more engaged group of voters that often have to travel out in very cold weather, treacherous conditions to participate. Kriya, you've been down in Iowa a little bit. Maybe can you speak a little bit to how Iowa feels about their historic part of being first in the nation here and their, the role they play in the Republican nomination process? Yeah, I think Iowans and Granite Staters in general have such a unique uh, perspective on presidential politics because of the level of access that they're given. These are a group of of voters uh, who have access to presidential candidates, to their top staff, to pundits, to top reporters across the country. They're really given it a level of access and inside have a better understanding of that inside baseball that most folks don't really get to see the process of than anyone else. And so they're used to having like Rick Santorum's phone number or having uh, a Scott Walker stay overnight in their home and having dinner with them or having a Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis come out and tour their farms, their family farms, their ethanol plants. They'll come to their small businesses. They rely on them to host events and they have their personal phone numbers. They'll just have a level of access to these voter, these potential next presidents of the United States, these senators, these ambassadors that they don't have elsewhere, but also because they have been caucus, a caucus state first in the nation for the last five decades. They also take their role seriously. They understand that they jumpstart this process for the entire country. And so it's not as equally as it is about choosing the best candidate to be president of the United States in their mind for Republicans and Democrats, respectively. It's also this process of who has the ability to go the farthest and go the longest. They're not going to vote for, uh, I'll give you a great example. John Delaney in 2020 was a Democrat who announced at the end of 2016, early 2017, that he was going to challenge Donald Trump in 2020 on the Democrat side. This is a guy who did two Grassleys, which means he went to all 99 counties in Iowa twice. 
He spent a lot of time in Iowa. He only ended up getting 5% of the vote, despite the fact that he put in the work. And why is that? Because Iowans didn't think he'd make go the distance. They didn't think he would be the best candidate to take on Donald Trump in November. And so they didn't allot their votes to him. And so in that respect, I think Iowans really understand and granted staters understand that they have a responsibility to the rest of the nation and to this process. And so they do take the time to vet these candidates, to go to all of their events, even if they're not necessarily on their side, they'll still go to the events, they'll ask them hard questions, they'll hold them accountable and really make sure that they're participating in the process because they understand that their votes and what happens on Monday night is going to really kickstart the momentum for everyone else as they go to New Hampshire, South Nevada, Michigan, and Super Tuesday. And so there really is a lot of responsibility that they feel to Americans. And so that's why I think you see so much hubbub, if you will, around the Iowa caucuses and so many people coming here. Really, it's not a spectacle, but in some ways it is, of how a small town in Iowa that frankly, most people would never pay two seconds of attention to becomes the most talked about place in the entire country, if not in the world, for one weekend in January or February. It is, as you say, the caucuses have certainly turned into a place where it doesn't necessarily mean that person is going to get the nominee, and we'll chat about that in a second, but it does weed out some of the weaker candidates. We saw this with Michelle Bachman in 2012, and I had a, of course, I had to look up some fun facts here. Traditionally, the top three is more important than the winner of the Iowa caucus, right? So here are some previous winners of the Iowa caucus that are notable because of their struggles. 2008, Mike Huckabee. He beat John McCain by 21 percentage points in 2008, and obviously McCain ended up becoming our nominee. Ted Cruz won in 2016, albeit only by 4% over Trump. And then on the Democrat side, obviously 2020 for the Democrats in Iowa was... I don't know a, a nicer way to say a cluster. Well, we'll just it was a debacle, right? It was pretty brutal. And Mayor Pete and Bernie both came out of, on top of Joe Biden there. So it certainly is a place that doesn't necessarily predict winners. But the top three is important. Real quick, some more numbers before I want to get here from John and Walter about their take of the historical significance about the Iowa caucuses. But the top three, seven of the eight Republican nominees since 1976 finished in the top three. For Democrats, it's eight of the last 10. Biden apparently in 2020 and Bill Clinton in 1992 both finished fourth. It, it certainly does show that being in the top among the top three, at least, is very important. Representative or, or John, do you have any takes of looking at the historical significance here of it and what it means for Republican nominees? I think as we look at this, I think one of the interesting things uh, about this cycle is that there hasn't really been a whole lot of consolidation. We're starting to see that a little bit. But similar to 2016, right, there were a lot of candidates. It started to get winnowed down a little bit, but there's still a handful of candidates. Yeah, I think in reality, there's probably three candidates out there who really are still having this conversation. It's President Trump, Governor DeSantis, and Governor Haley. I don't know that being in the top three, I've, <laughs> if Governor Haley or Governor DeSantis are not in the top three, I think that would be a huge story. But I think what I'm looking for is something a little bit more about how far the candidates are separated from one another on Monday night, because I think that'll tell us more than whether or not somebody's in the top three 
at least from my take about the future of the campaign. I, I feel as though I have somewhat ironically the most opaque view of the Iowa caucuses in spite of the fact that I lived in the state for five years, but I lived there before I really got political. And so I never participated in the caucuses, but certainly I'm aware of how much of an impact they have on the culture of the state. But just looking at it in like in retrospect, thinking about the caucuses that we've seen in the presidential campaign seasons that have come and gone. On the one hand, it feels like a lot of pomp and circumstance because as so often, whoever wins in Iowa doesn't eventually become the presidential nominee. In this case, that might be different, right? And Trump, if you look at the polling, Trump appears to be well ahead of the candidates vying for number two. On the other hand, you look at the fundamentals of the ground game of the, what the campaigns have been building and suggests, and of course, the cold weather and all these other factors, it suggests that we could have another candidate emerge on top. But either way, the impact on terms of who's ultimately going to be the nominee for the party is certainly not determinative. And yet, because it has that prominent status of being the first time that someone is on the record having political results during a presidential campaign season, the campaigns have to take it seriously. And one of those questions as we get into the particular candidates and campaigns is, has Ron DeSantis basically spent all of his resources on this effort to try to come out on top in Iowa and is going to have nothing left in the gas tank to go beyond. So that'll be an interesting question to look at next Monday night. John. And it's come up a couple of times, but I think as we look at the caucus, I think it's an important thing to understand how people decide whether or not they're going to go caucus because the weather's come up, right? It's going to be crappy weather. Generally speaking, there's four different camps of people who go to caucus, right? There's the people who just always go to caucus because they always go to caucus. They always vote. They have some sort of, Preya talked about the civic duty type motivation that they have. There's another batch of people who go to caucus because it's a social thing for them, right? They go to caucus like people go to church. That's where their friends are. They go catch up with people. That's just what they do. They often are very involved with their local political party. Then you've got the people who are true believers behind one of the candidates. Those people tend to be very motivated. And then you have the last bucket, I think, is the most inconsistent. And that's the new caucus attendees that can't campaigns spend that time trying to cultivate, develop, turn out. And it's not an easy task to turn out and create new caucus attendees because as we talked about, it's a little bit more of a complicated process than voting in a primary, right? It's a multi-step thing to go find your way there, get signed in, sit in a gym or a church basement or an auditorium, community center, whatever it might be. So that's something that I think the weather could have an impact on is creating those new caucus attendees. We know that there's always going to be some folks who have those diehard supporters. But what I'm curious to see is where do the people who just go to caucus every time start to break down? Because those people are most likely to be there. They've caucused in the cold before. They have done this before. They're not rookies to the process. And that's a big bucket of who is going to turn out. Uh, are those repeat caucus attendees, whether it's 
because that's what they do, whether it's because they they're, feel it's their civic duty or whether it's because it's a social thing. Those voters tend to be very conservative. They tend to be very plugged in. They tend to be very connected with their community. And so I'm watching where those those delegates and voters end up breaking down. I love that breakdown in those buckets because I think it is, we've talked about the delegate endorsing process here in the state of Minnesota as well. And it's certainly a strategy that campaigns need to look at of whether what percentage they're dedicating to new folks versus winning over those diehards because, and we'll get into this a little bit when we talk through campaign strategies in Iowa, but in 2016, President Trump, half of the caucus goers in Iowa were new caucus goers who came out for Trump. And that's something we saw nationwide. And I, I love that breakdown. We'll come back to that. Before we move on to the actual delegate process here in Iowa, I do want to nerd out a little bit more. I'm going to tweet out a Vox article about this wild little history of Iowa caucuses that I was not familiar with, but really breaks down of how in the 1960s, McCarthy-Humphrey era, with the war going on and civil rights movement and all of this stuff, there were huge protests, big movement to buck the system. They were sick of the power brokers who were giving these delegate spots for power and money, and it really was a backroom deal. I had no idea that this really is how it came to be. Democrats did it first. Republicans followed suit in 76. And Jimmy Carter spent a vast amount of time in Iowa and really was the first one to take advantage of that. Totally nerded out. I'm going to tweet this article because if anybody else wants to really um, get into the nerdy side of uh, this, you should be welcome to do so. I do want to now go into breaking down the mechanics of this. Priya, I'm going to start with you again. You are in Iowa right now. You're in the the depths of it. Get into the weeds with us a little bit about how this process works. I looked up, there are 1,657 caucus locations across the state of Iowa this year for Republicans. That's a lot of spots. How does the as somebody again working with the Haley camp, how does how do campaigns break down this trying to woo over those forty delegates, and how does that delegate breakdown really happen? So I'll actually have to go back to twenty twenty because on the super PAC side we're mostly doing advertising stuff, and so not really in the nitty gritty. For I should have known that. I'm sorry. No, you're perfectly <laughs> fine. But we can talk about it from my days at the RNC and the Trump campaign. As you mentioned, there are a lot of different precincts that folks are going to have to go through. And in 2020, what the Trump campaign and the RNC essentially did is that they went out and made sure they had speakers for every single caucus location across the state. And so I think what it ended up breaking down to is like four or five precincts for every caucus location. So we needed about like 450 to 500 speakers for the various caucus locations. And so essentially these are individuals, every campaign has the opportunity to send one spokesperson to a caucus location to speak to these caucus goers about and make their pitch before they vote about why uh, their candidate is the best candidate to move ahead and be in that top three to get a ticket out of Iowa into New Hampshire. And so On the back end, it's a lot of coordinating, right? Making sure that you have your grassroots in place, making sure you have folks uh, who can speak to these various locations, having those locations, making sure that there's transportation. In 2020, the Trump campaign flew out 80 surrogates on the big Trump 747 to Iowa. 
It was Nikki Haley, or not Nikki Haley, sorry. It was Christy Nome. It was cabinet members. It was congressmen, senators, the Trump kids, anyone really. And we all had to plan where they were going to be. I think we drove Wilbur Ross (laughs) to like Cedar Rapids one night. And that he had a caucus location that he went to right there. Lara Trump went to one location. Don Jr. went to a location. And, and you pick these locations based on where you think your people are going to be or where you have the best opportunity to turn voters over. Now, we're really fortunate on the Republican side that the caucus process is very simple, unlike the, the Democrats and is partially the reason why they ended up losing their caucus status. But very similarly to Minnesota, it's simply just you put down who your preference is, you write it down. I can't remember if it's just writing it down on a slip of paper like we do in Minnesota, if there's an actual ballot that they fill out. Um, But regardless, they pick who their person is. It's just one person. They put it in a bucket, they count it, and then we're done. On the Democrat side in 2020, it's a little bit different. They essentially like to play four corners for the kids in elementary school. And so what they all essentially did was they would group off into who their candidate was. Bernie had a group. Elizabeth Warren had a group. Kamala Harris had a group. Pete Buttigieg had a group. And so they had an opportunity to group together. And then they have an allotment, I think it's like five to 15 minutes, where they're allowed to go into these groups and try to pull people away into their groups. And I think they do that like once or twice, and then the groups would be locked. And then that's how they would decide, okay, this is who wins the caucus process. Again, very confusing. It's no wonder they had as much trouble as they did in 2020. Um, But that's essentially how they went about picking their candidate for president. And then when it comes to the actual delegate breakdown, uh, Iowa is one of those states where it's allotted based on the percentage that you have. So if there are 40 delegates up for for grabs and Trump got the most uh the most votes, he would get the largest share of delegates. If Nikki comes in second, she would get the second largest share and it would break down so on and so, so, so forth. In other states, this has especially changed since Trump lost in 2020. His team has been working very hard to change the the primary caucus rules in some states to now where Michigan and California are winner take all, whereas they were based on breakdowns based on the percentage you got and were allotted as a result. And so that does change things a bit in 2024 compared to where they were in the past. John, did you have something to chime in there? Oh, sorry. thought I was going to step on your toes. Yeah, I think in, in with the Democrats, I believe once they don't have fit anybody that does not meet the threshold of 15%, they're dropped off. Those people then physically move to other groups. It's a fascinating little game to watch, but 2020 sh- certainly showed some issues there. I did want to say, ask a question real quick, just generally, if anybody believes, obviously for the Democrats, their 2020 situation was certainly a, quite a debacle. Do we think that ex- that had highlighted some vulnerabilities in this kind of process, which is so much, again, 1,600 different locations, 1,600 dis- different precinct chairs? Does anybody think that this, because of, I was reading an article about like the modern era with kind of an archaic system of doing things, right? We do it on paper. We count it by hand. We There's so much room for user error in there. Does anybody have concerns about this process going forward simply from that perspective? Michael, I'll start with you. I would, I would say to you then, and some of this piggybacks on a little bit of what Prey has said, and just in, for a little bit of my history, I'm born and raised in Minnesota, lived there my entire life. I have relatives all across the state of Iowa. 
and I've spent a lot of time down there, not on the day of Iowa caucuses per se, but it is amazing the level of access that these candidates have, that individual, just average people have just, and I don't want to say average people, but it's just very unique, particularly being a Minnesotan and not having that level of access. I remember sitting multiple times at the farm in Iowa and, and reading the Dyersville commercial and seeing just advertisements for presidential candidates and, and, and having the opportunity to go and sit down and talk to them. And, and that's what Iowa residents get. The people from the state of Iowa get that opportunity. And so I understand there may be, there is a number of bureaucratic procedures that could present trouble. And it obviously did for the Democrats in 2020, but th there is a level of customer access that the average Iowa voter gets that I just think that I think they're going to resist ever leaving that, even if there were some bureaucratic snafus. The level of the opportunity that candidates, that the residents of Iowa get to, number one, if you, if, having visited over the holidays down in Iowa just recently, the number of television commercials, that's nonstop. But just that ability to just drive into a small town and have those discussions with those candidates is just simply remarkable. And I think that they enjoy that process. I think they enjoy the tension. Sure, they might get frustrated a bit by their TV commercials being inundated to the level that you're but in terms of their access, that's going to be a tough thing, I think, to take away. I think for the Democrats, I think there were some demographic issues that they, that were part of the reason that they also wanted to move away from Iowa in terms of where they wanted to target and represent based on how they view the constituency of their caucus should be or their nomination process should be. But I think that this, I think, barring there being some type of structural breakdown on Monday night, like the Democrats had, I think Republicans have shown that this is going to be, at least for another four years, an integral part of their nomination process. And one thing I will just chime back in to piggyback off of Michael here for a quick second, too, is that there was actually a lot of work on the back end that goes into making sure that the Iowa caucuses are safe and secure and that there aren't any snafus. Obviously, that didn't really work for the Democrats in 2020. But it, there really does. I remember sitting in on meetings with the Harvard election integrity folks, like folks coming in from out east talking about, OK, we know that there potentially could be folks who want to try to interfere with this process. How do we go about securing this and making this safe and making sure that everything is done in a way that folks have confidence in it? And what are safeguards that we can take to ensure that people are confident and believe that this is a safe and secure process? And so there really are a lot of folks who do come in and take a look at that and try to help the parties understand what threats they're facing as the world changes and how they can go about securing the caucuses even further. So it really is a lot of people who are invested in that from that perspective as well. So I don't necessarily think it, it's necessarily that the process doesn't work. I think for the last five decades that it has and the fact that the Republicans had no issues getting their results out on caucus night in 2020 was another example of that. I think that the Democrats just overcomplicated the process and I think the DNC, to, to Michael's point, was just looking for an excuse to say, okay, we're done. Let's move somewhere else. Representative. I'm going to break convention a little bit here and actually ask a question because I'm genuinely curious about, for, for those of you who have more practical experience with how the Iowa caucuses work, I'm curious how they compare and contrast to what we do here in Minnesota in terms of our caucus process. Because speaking of that question of the integrity of the process and having confidence in results, Obviously, there have been some fairly high-profile incidents here in Minnesota within the MNGOP of folks feeling as though they've been disenfranchised in various ways. And as somebody who has convened 
caucuses for every cycle going back to 2010 in this state and has served in a variety of different BPOUs. I recognize, as I'm sure everybody else here does, that we're resting this all on the shoulders of a lot of volunteers Correct. Uh, who, and to be completely frank, amateurs, like people who are not getting paid to do this and out of the kindness of their heart are stepping up to read a script and try to herd cats in a caucus room in a school auditorium somewhere. And so how does that compare with how they do it in Iowa? Is it a little bit more professionalized? Is it a little bit more standardized? And is there anything that we could learn here in Minnesota that's a copy and paste to make our process better? I don't have an exact answer for that. I don't know if anybody does. My thoughts on, yeah, you're completely right here in Minnesota are certainly in precincts where somebody just shows up that day. There's not a convener and they're thrust into it. Here's a packet, go read. I would say largely, I do want to say that I know a lot of the people that do this, whether John and I served in St. Paul BPOU together, it is a largely dedicated group of people that are trying their best to make the system work. And, and I think people always are working within the means that they have to do that. But I think I know personally in Minnesota, there's always also because if you are involved in politics at this level, that you are dedicating so much time to this process to show up on a cold night, find babysitters, go sit there for two to four hours in a gym, not having dinner, all of that kind of stuff. There is a level of dedication to wanting to do this earnestly and honestly and by the book. But there is always, those people are also heavily involved usually with a candidate or having their side. So there is always, I think, going to be some skepticism of whether or not they are playing for one team more than another. And and unfortunately, I think that's just the matter of the beast here. And we just have to do our best to, to uphold that. Michael, I think you had something to chime in. I think if you're someone in Minnesota who, to Representative Hudson's point, if you're looking at it as a way to understand what goes on in Iowa, it's very similar to what happens in Minnesota, except there's just a little bit more of institutional history in terms of Iowa placing, having a role in the nomination process than in Minnesota. But it's a very it's a very similar process. If you're a Republican activist or a Democratic activist listening to this and trying to understand what happens on the night of the Iowa caucuses, it's very similar to what happens in Minnesota. And so you're dealing with that same kind of, you're dealing with professional operations that are sometimes colliding with volunteers uh, and people that are convening these meetings and running them who may have a bias uh, interfacing with people and having to run a meeting and referee a process when they're not necessarily, bi- they're not unbiased in their discussions as to how they want to, which candidate they're supporting and overseeing. So there's a real, it can create a real pe- perfect storm. But to Representative Hudson's point, it is incredibly similar to what happens on on precinct on caucus night up in Minnesota. The only difference, I think, that for Minnesotans is we also have a primary system, we'll have a presidential primary, we'll have a caucus system. Um, but this one is just, this is what happens on Minnesota on steroids in terms of the influence, the, the dominance, and the role that the candidates and the attention that they get. Going back to Prairie's point, the level of access that people in Iowa get in part of the precinct caucus system. And there's a likelihood that, you know, that there's your candidates that are showing up and, and part of discussions and will be, be participating and attending these meetings. The kind of access that Republican candidates will sometimes see on the gubernatorial side. There's the can- candidates running for the Republican nomination for the United States Senator Governor, they're running statewide. They'll show up to precinct caucus night and talk. Down in Iowa, it's presidential candidates and others uh, who will be getting that type of access. So a great connection that Representative Hudson in terms of giving our listeners an, an idea and understanding how Minnesota is similar and what we're going to, what we'll be learning on uh, Monday night down in Iowa. The thing that I think I would 
add is that it's important to separate the difference between the caucus night stropple and the caucus night delegate selection process. Good point. Uh, because Minnesota, we never really had issues with uh, our straw poll results. The controversy that I recall has always been about the delegate process and who moves forward through that. But the actual counting of the straw poll ballot, I think, is something that uh, you know, regardless of which candidate you're supporting or where you fall on it is something that people have always taken seriously and taken the time to report back to party headquarters. Yeah, and I think there were some changes that took place where now delegates are bound. You don't end up with a situation like in 2012 where the first night, what we were told that Romney had won in Iowa then we found out that Santorum had narrowly eked it out, and then Ron Paul ended up with a majority of the delegates. And you've had some of that controversy come forward, similar to what happened in Minnesota, right? It was very close between Santorum, Romney, and Paul, and then Ron Paul took almost all of our delegates. So I think looking at the straw poll and separating the two, now especially that delegates are proportionally bound, I think removes kind of some of that room for error and confusion. And to be clear, and correct me if I'm wrong, but in, in Iowa, they're just bound for the first ballot, correct? I believe so. Yeah, so any bound delegate to the RNC is only bound for that first uh, ballot, no matter uh, who they're bound to or how. But the odds of us going to a brokered convention and delegates needing to be released on that second ballot, I think, exceedingly rare. That's ever been close to a thing that's happened. And as we work towards that Milwaukee convention, we can chat a little bit more about how that goes. Minnesota is certainly different about how our delegates are elected for the national convention and their ability to do whatever the hell they want, right? I want to get into kind of, so this week there was a, a big week in the presidential slate of candidates for the Republican side. We had the debate between Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley. Donald Trump did his town hall. Chris Christie did his town hall dropout hot mic situation, which we'll maybe get into if we have time later on. But want to chat specifically about the candidates, their activity in Iowa, whether any of these town halls debates, how they impact the race. And I just want to start out by a general, and, I'm, and Priya, I'm going to start with you because you do have more insight into Nikki Haley's activities or the activities supporting Governor Haley in Iowa from the PAC side and, and maybe a little bit of comparison to others. But I did want to, I was reading, I believe, a, a, an NPR article this morning that almost half, more than $100 million of the $258 million in ad spending has already gone towards Iowa, which is very significant, obviously. There is a lot being spent there. President Trump, I think that we saw a lot invested in 2016, less so now this time around. Not really sure he needs to spend that much time there. He's obviously doing really great in the polls. Um, but Priya, why don't we start with you about some of the strategies and um, activity from the Haley side um, campaign pack, whatever insight you can glean? Yeah, so I think with Ambassador Haley, the the main thing that she's been doing is frankly what she's been doing for the last what eleven months, which is meeting with as many voters as humanly possible. So she's done over, I think, over 100, 150 town halls between Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina. She's making sure that she's taking the opportunity to to meet with voters. She's taking time to shake, do the shaking hands, kissing babies, answering their questions, uh, having transparent, open conversations with them. She's participated in the debates. 
And I think that's largely been her focus is just making sure that she's interacting with those those voters because Iowa is very much a retail politics state. They very much like the interaction with these candidates. It's something that they've gotten used to for the last 50 years. There's a level of access that they, they enjoy and they expect these candidates to participate in. And so I, uh, that's exactly what she has been doing. I think from the PAC side, it's been mostly an advertising or media front, making sure that we're holding Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump accountable for their record, for things that they've said in the past, things that they've championed in legislation that they're now trying to change here in Iowa, because frankly, voters might not agree with their position on it. Um, it really is a, a votes game. How do you bring the most caucus goers to Iowa? And so that's been the, the focus, I think, um, for the campaign over the, in the super PAC over the last 11 months. Uh, they're doing a number of events where they can, obviously, weather permitting to close out this final week. But yeah, that's pretty much been it. I, that's what you do when you're, you're in Iowa. It's meeting with as many people as humanly possible, going to the small towns, having events um, at restaurants, at barns, at people's homes, their businesses, wherever it is. It's finding a spot, meeting with folks and, and having those conversations because it is what they expect. It's what they respond to the best and really is the difference maker between whether or not someone goes out and supports you uh, on caucus night because there have been instances and stories that I've heard in Iowa of folks in communities who have literally made choices on who they support on caucus night because one candidate chose to go to their small town of population 1,200 people and the other candidate did not. Just insert a, a fun fact here. At the state, it, here in Minnesota, when there's like statewide candidates running, I certainly hear from delegates that are like, I wanted to support X candidate, but they never called me. So nope, not going to do it. So there is something true to them. that the, the, These folks want to be wooed. They want to be won over and they want you to say, you're important to me and my campaign and I want you on my team. Exactly. Representative John, any what's your take on any of the candidates, their strategy or tactics in Iowa leading up to this going too hard, not hard enough? Any thoughts on that? Representative, we'll start with you. Yeah, I stayed up later than I should have last night watching the debate between Haley and DeSantis, and they are not going soft. Like they've they have taken the gloves off, and it was a, a raucous cat fight between the two of them for what conventionally seems to be second place. If you're looking at the polling, which is an interesting phenomenon. Here you have the front runner who's just not participating at all who's being talked about a lot, and a lot of the questions are directly about Donald Trump, but you're not hearing from Donald Trump, you're hearing from the two folks who would rather be the nominee, and they were going after each other with as much fervor as they were going after him. And now that we've gotten down to a point, when we first started doing these responses to debates uh, on this program, one of our uniform complaints amongst the panel was that there's too many voices here. There's not enough substance. We don't get to actually hear what these people believe about anything. And that certainly wasn't the case with the Haley DeSantis um, debate this week. They definitely, because there was just the two of them, they got to dig into the details of their cases, both for themselves and against each other. And uh, one of the fears that I came away with 
from the whole thing is that we can reach that because it's such late stage and people are pulling out their desperation cards that there is potentially lasting damage being done to these candidates if they do in fact ultimately prevail, right? Somehow Haley becomes the nominee or somehow DeSantis becomes the nominee. Now we've aired out all this dirty laundry that we're going to have to go back and try to retcon moving into the general. But of course, that's always the nature of primaries. But it's it's interesting because you hear this anecdotal, these anecdotal claims um, from supporters of DeSantis that all of this groundwork has been done and they've got all these commit cards and they've got more commit cards than winners of the Iowa caucuses have had in the past and that they've got the the ground game that nobody else has. Um, and none of that's being reflected in the polls and just you wait and see, we're going to surprise everybody on Monday night and maybe they will. That would certainly be an interesting story. And, but, and then you've got from the Haley campaign, a different approach, which seems to be, if I threaded DeSantisLies.com into a paragraph as many times as Nikki Haley did. It would be quite comical. She was really heavy on trying to discredit his bona fides, which is an interesting tactic considering the fact that he can point to a number of things that he has done in his state that objectively are things that grassroots activists, the types of people who show up to these events, these caucuses, say they want to see accomplished. And yet we have this weird dynamic that certainly frustrates me, both as a a conservative activist and a candidate and a incumbent representative, which is that there seems to be this disconnect between what people say they want and what they actually ultimately respect and support politically. Because it seems like the show, like the talk, the rhetoric, which is what you get with Trump, the kind of bombastic, here I am, let's fight the kabuki theater for lack of a better term gets people more excited than being able to point to your record and say these are the things i've done these are the things i've followed through on this is what i'm going to accomplish on day one if you elect me and so how that all sorts out on monday i think is going to be very interesting in terms of projecting how things are going to go for the rest of this cycle John, I want to ask you about, so a new poll came out just yesterday, has Haley in second place now, first time over DeSantis. Trump has 54, Haley has 20, DeSantis at 13, and Vivek at six. Do you think, obviously not looking at the crosstabs or anything, just speculating, do you think that debate had any impact on that? Do you think Chris Christie dropping out, those folks went over to Haley? A little bit of a few questions all in one, but what's your take on this new boost to Haley and the potential impact that debate and Christie's actions may have had on her search? I think there's always consolidation and people go and start to break down, but the closer and closer that you get to an election, there's also a different kind of level of seriousness that folks consider who they're actually going to vote for. It's really easy when you're talking about a distant, far off election that's way down in the future to just park yourself somewhere. And when you start to actually sit down, consider where you're going to go, if you were up for grabs at any point along that path, you start to shake out towards the end. And so the magic of any election is peaking at the right time. And we see this ebb and flow. But to Representative Hudson's point, caucuses are notoriously difficult to pull. If we're going and let's say that we wanted to create a survey of Iowa caucus attendees, 
we talked about those four buckets earlier, right? And we need to decide which percentage of each of those buckets we're going to allocate to our sample size. We need to figure out where to go get those people. So to the extent that DeSantis has built this ground game that is going to find new caucus attendees to go get those caucus commit cards, that might not be reflected in the polling if they haven't caucused in the past, because we don't know how to get them. Without calling a completely random sample and making a ton of calls in order to get a large enough representative sample of potential caucus attendees, it's really difficult to poll these. So I don't put a ton of stock into surveys of caucus attendees. That being said, I think that Governor DeSantis has the, I don't want to say it's win or go home for him, but I can't think of another state where he has a better operation, more high profile endorsements, has spent more money. He really has set these the stakes for himself very high that he needs to, if not win, be in a very close second place. And I think if he's if he's 20, 30 points back from where Trump is, I don't know what his path is forward. There's not going to be another state where he has a Bob Vanderplatz, a Kim Reynolds, the what a majority of the legislature, a majority of the congressional delegation has spent tens of millions of dollars on advertising and ground game. He does not have the time, the bandwidth, the money to replicate that in a single state looking forward. And this has got to be his high watermark. So I think that's where the, the stakes down. If, if Governor Haley ends up in second place somehow, I think that's a massive story for her. But looking at the town hall the other night, yeah, I think they were talking to different voters. And I think they both hit where they needed to hit. DeSantis was going definitely after more of a conservative base voter, somebody who's more likely to be an Iowa caucus attendee. Governor Haley seemed to be appealing more to somebody who's susceptible to a, let's get things done, let's uh, focus on some accomplishments, and more of a moderate voter, which is going to be key to New Hampshire. Uh, And so I think they both had a good night, but for different reasons. And The last thing that I'll touch on really quick as I ramble on here, Representative Hudson talked about seeing the difference between what people tell you that they want and where they're reflected in the polling. And I think this is something that we see a lot of people make mistakes about when they're reading a poll. There's always a difference between kind of a issue that people agree with you on and what I'll call a vote determinant issue the vote, the issue that actually determines how they're going to decide who they're going to vote for. And a story that comes to mind, and we saw this, God, this must have been in 2016 up here, the Democrats went all in on climate change, and we couldn't figure out why. And so we looked at polling, we added some questions about climate change and said, are they seeing something in their polling that we're not seeing? And what we saw was that overwhelmingly people in these suburban swing vote uh, districts agreed with the Democrats' position on climate change. But nobody had that as their determinant issue, except for the people who were already voting for the DFL, right? So they said, we have a 70, 75% issue in these districts, and it didn't change a single <laughs> mind because people were talking about the economy. People were talking about healthcare that election. People were talking about wasteful spending with the new Senate office building. There were tax hikes on the table. So all of those things ended up being more real. And so I think separating the 
the interesting from the important, the things that people agree with you on from the things that'll move people. And I think that was another big risk that Governor DeSantis took, right? He decided that he was going to run this campaign on wokeism. He didn't talk as much about the economy. He didn't talk as much about foreign policy. This was, I'm going to take on woke academia. I'm going to take on parents' rights. And he tried to thread that needle. And what we're seeing is that folks are still really concerned about the economy. They're really concerned about jobs. They're really concerned about inflation that we've seen under Joe Biden. And even though inflation is slowing, it's slowing from all times highs. It didn't go back down. Yeah, it's slower inflation from a new higher price. So people are still trying to figure out how they're going to feed their families, how much their groceries cost. And I think that's where a lot of the electorate is. And it was a risk for DeSantis to chase the issue of the moment that really was popping on social media. One thing that I've seen him being accused of is running a very online campaign where whatever the issue of the day on Twitter is seems to be what's getting chased and talked about. And I'll be curious how that translates, but more importantly, I'll be really curious if he's able to get any of those new caucus attendees to turn out when it's below zero for a process where people are seeing polls that say that he doesn't have a chance. And if you've got a voter who's on the edge and they think that their vote might not matter because it's going to be a blowout, you've got to worry about fall off there. So I think he's got the highest stakes and needs to really do a, have a big showing on Monday. So you, you talked a little bit about DeSantis and his kind of need to come into a, a second place here, especially heading in towards places like New Hampshire, where Nikki Haley has obviously been targeting some of her messaging for. So I want to jump into our next breakdown topic here, the significance of the Iowa caucuses here in 2024. Thus far, since the mid-1970s, there have only been, when these caucuses really became what they are today, we've only had three presidents who have won the Iowa caucus and then they've been elected president, Jimmy Carter, Barack Obama, and George uh, Bush in 2000. So that's relatively significant, right? We, we've seen that be a thing here on both sides of the aisle, that it's not largely predicting who the eventual winner is. So want to get your guys' takes of, as especially as we head into places like New Hampshire, where Chris Christie was polling a, a, a above 10% largely, you know, that's his area and where he's dedicated a lot of his time. What is your thought of this caucus this year in Iowa, how it's going to lead into these candidates and their placement um, in people's minds as we head into other places? And is it going to be impactful? Uh, Priyo, can I start with you again? Yeah. So I think with Iowa, especially it's a momentum game, right? I think some, and I think the DeSantis camp had a little bit of an issue with this early on because there was a lot of talk, maybe like early summer, about focusing more on delegate math rather than momentum. And as we saw historically, Rudy Giuliani is a great example of this. He came in as a favor to win it all. Instead of focusing on Iowa, chose to go uh, the delegate math route in order to get to his nomination number. And what ended up happening is because he didn't play in Iowa, he didn't poll well, and then he didn't have momentum going into New Hampshire, and it all fell apart right after the fact. And Iowa really does kick start this momentum because that momentum takes you into New Hampshire where folks are like, oh, they did really well in, in Iowa. They have a chance. 
let's take a closer look at them. Donors are like, okay, they did really well. We can inject more money into them. You have to realize that the race to, to Iowa is long, it is hard, and it is expensive. Nikki Haley kind of pointed to it on debate night. Ron DeSantis spent $150 million. That's literally what he spent on Iowa alone. And if he doesn't, to John's point, if he doesn't come out in a very close second to Donald Trump or win it all, what's the return on investment? And more importantly, are donors looking at that and saying, we want to throw more money at him to get to New Hampshire and maybe place third or whatever that looks like, or South Carolina, Nevada, et cetera? Are voters looking at that and are they saying he's not doing well? He's not where he said he was supposed to be. We have other candidates. And to go back to John's point again, it's about consolidation. If folks are really serious about taking on Donald Trump and finding that alternative, obviously, the race hasn't consolidated enough into a physical two-person race. I think the polls and everything else have shown that this is a two-person race. But until DeSantis and everybody else gets out, it's still a, a wide field. And that momentum does that for these candidates. It forces them to make tough decisions based on money, based on that momentum and everything else. And so that's, I think, what Iowa's role plays more than anything else. It really is that jumpstart uh, of that momentum. It really carries folks and sets the tone for what we see in the other early states. And so that, I think, is more Iowa's role in, in, the, in this whole presidential process, more so than anything else. Gentlemen, anybody else have any thoughts on significance of Iowa? I had a a meeting with a candidate who's strongly considering running in CD3, and he was just a coffee for about half an hour, and he talked a great game about how much he's committed to to doing this, how much money he can raise, how many people he knows. And it was one of those situations where you're sitting there and you listen to it and you go, man, if all of this is true... This is going to be awesome. But at some point, you got to put up. You got to actually show the receipts that you're capable of, of doing what you say. And that's what this moment is with the Iowa caucuses, is it's you've heard these people talk. You've heard the pundits pontificate. You've seen the polling. And now it's game day. Now it's preseason. Now you're going to see a scrimmage. Now you're going to see these players operate under game conditions And you're going to be able to determine, you're going to be able to judge and observe whether or not their trash talk is actually justified. That's the role that I see this serving. It's not determinative necessarily, clearly, it's not determinative of who ultimately is going to be the nominee for the party, no more so than a preseason game is determinative of who's going to ultimately win the Super Bowl. But it does show you important aspects of how these people play this game that can very much inform how you're, you can, what you can expect from them and what you can expect from the process going forward. We are close to the end of our time here, so I want to be mindful of that. One quick stat I do have on this. A National Bureau of Economic Research study of 2004 found that voters who cast ballots in early voting states, such as Iowa, had up to 20 times the influence of late voters in the selection of candidates. And so I think whether or not this is only 40 delegates, only six electoral votes, it's not super substantial in the grand scheme of things. 
that influence is super significant and substantial. And that was just a huge number that I was surprised to see that there is that much influence, even though, again, it's only those 40 delegates and six electoral votes at the end of the day. So I'm going to go, I'm really going to put you guys all on the spot here. We're going to go into predictions and expectations. I want to go around the horn here. And sorry, John, because you didn't chime in on the last one. I'm going to start with you. So do some quick math. I want everybody to rank the the four candidates we have in the race of who the order you think that are going to be the results, who's going to get first, second, third, fourth, and maybe throw a little percentage behind it. Are we going to get a 50, 25, 10, 5? That was some poor math there, but don't worry. We won't judge if you don't get it to a hundred percent, but let's get these rankings here. John, who's, what order are you given and how big of percentage gaps are you, are you thinking? So I think my prediction is that president Trump is going to win Iowa. What I'm watching is what does that margin look like between first and second? I think in order for DeSantis to have a good night, he needs to be within spitting distance of where Donald Trump is. Uh, just because I don't see where he goes anywhere else from here. And if he can't come out of there and almost match delegate count with Donald Trump and show that he can compete, I just don't see what's there. So I've got DeSantis in second place. I've got Haley in third. And again, that's another one where I'll be watching how close they are. If Haley and DeSantis are basically tied, I think that's a good night for Haley, a bad night for DeSantis. Uh, And then I've got Vivek down in the high single digits, probably. He's got, I think Steve King is his big endorser out of Iowa, but he spent a lot of time there. He's got a quirky, quirky bit about himself where I think there's a certain subset of those delegates who just always go to caucus who might like that. He's still a little bit of an outsider. So I've got him in the mid to high single digits. But for DeSantis to have a good night, I think we need to see Trump under 50. And we need to see DeSantis up in that 40 plus percent range in order to really be able to declare any sort of victory coming out of Iowa. Awesome. Representative Hudson, what are you, what's your order of results here? I think there's been an attempt to try and group just because in the polling, they're both vying for second place, trying to group DeSantis and Haley together as being in the same lane. And I just don't see it that way. I think that the lanes are better defined or better. The grouping of lanes is more Trump and DeSantis versus, and you could throw Vivek in there if you want to continue to talk about Vivek. And Haley's kind of by herself in terms of the lane that she's driving in. Christie was in that lane, but he's not in the race anymore. So I'm going to go out on a limb and suggest that the the MAGA lane is going to be dominant on Monday and that it's going to break down pretty evenly between DeSantis and Trump. But I do think that DeSantis is going to pull it off just because Ooh. of again, that anecdotal ground game claims that have been made about how many commit cards they've gotten, how much work they've been putting in. I think that's going to show and DeSantis is going to pull it off. Trump's not going to be very far behind. They'll probably split 80% of the the vote between them. And then Haley will come in somewhere in the teens. And to John's point, Vivek will do a Me Too thing and pop in with a, a point or two at the very bottom. Interesting. I, I like that take. Yes, it is. All in for DeSantis. I, I appreciate that that optimism as we get down here. I think it is going to be interesting, as we talked about, especially as Priya mentioned, 
how much the del- or the caucus goers put some weight behind Trump not giving them the time and the attention this year. I, I think that is going to be a factor that we yet to be seen. Priya, your thoughts? I'm biased here. Nikki is going to win. We don't play for seconds. He's going to win caucus night. It's going to be great. Since obviously I'm very biased in this, well, I'll just talk about expectations here for a quick second because my math is not going to really matter in the grand scheme of things. I think that the Trump's team is scared. They've been going around saying that they publicly want to, if they have a 12 point, a 12 point margin uh, between first and second place, that it's a good night for them, which I think is not reminiscent of the polls whatsoever. And I think it's a sign that they're seeing something that's not really driving with what their candidate should be doing. I think to, to John's point, Ron has put all of his eggs in the Iowa basket. And if it doesn't play off big for him on Monday night, he needs to seriously have conversations about where he goes next. I think Nikki has a ton of opportunities to move forward and really show that she is that person to take on Donald Trump. And I think she'll surprise a lot of folks with how things shake out on Monday night. And then Honestly, I see Vivek being like John Delaney. I think he'd be very lucky if he got 5%. But that's also another personal bias of mine. So we'll leave it at that. Michael, what's your breakdown? So I, the advantage of going fourth is I can listen to the other advice of smarter <laughs> people and, and then chime in. So I'm going to- They all chose different winners though. Correct. But I, but so I'm going to just lean on their wisdom a bit. I, I would say that I think it, I would like to see Haley do very well, and that's my hope that she does well. So there's my bias on the onset. I do think this comes down to I think she's got a ticket punched out of there. Um, I think the question is where does she fall in? If she, but she, I think she'll be in somewhere in one, two, and three. Uh, I think that the, the question is where is she in one, two, and three? Uh, I think DeSantis needs to win. I don't know that he will win. I think there's a real possibility that that Trump could come out on top, and I think for DeSantis. I think the problem is that he's put all, as I think John had said, all his eggs in one basket. And I think that's what needs to happen. So I think the one that, I think the campaign that's probably going to be the most nervous on Monday night is going to be the DeSantis camp, watching the results come in. And I think percentages, I was told there would be no math, so I can't offer any math advice on that, and it wouldn't be correct. But that's where I think it's at. Vivek, as, as someone else pointed out, I think everyone agreed, is probably going to be in those teens in some low spot. I could see him. He's running, as I think someone smarter had said, kind of a populist campaign. He's really engaging and doing some kind of quirky things. We'll see where he is. But I think it's the question is one, two, and three. Trump, DeSantis, not necessarily in order, but of the three candidates, I think, that are in that spot, it's Trump, DeSantis, and Haley. My hope is Haley it is farther up on the rung, but definitely a DeSantis needs to be one or two. And if he's not, even if he's not number one, I think he's going to, if he's not number one, uh, I think there's going to be a lot of questions about his campaign. And so we'll see what happens. Uh, but that's where my take is. Uh, no math and uh, piggybacking on the smart wisdom of other people. Just because I have to put you on the spot to make sure I know if I can say you're wrong or right. Do you, uh, we know what you hope and we know what you think uh, DeSantis needs to do. But if you said, if it's tomorrow and I'm going to give you a million dollars, if you get it right, what's your order? DeSantis Haley. I got to be able to come back and say you were right or wrong. It's just what Thank I Thank you so much for that. I appreciate, I appreciate that. Thanks. Absolutely. I, I don't have a ton of to add in terms of what everybody else covered. I think DeSantis needs to do really well. I'm hopeful that Haley does really well. I just don't have a whole lot of belief that Republican voters are done with Donald Trump and that Mega Lane isn't 100% held by him and really only him until some until he's no longer a candidate. So I think Trump is going to come out on top. 
I'm going to I'm going to think that DeSantis does come in second. I don't think he's going to come in as close of a second as he's expecting, but I think DeSantis and Haley are going to be right there pretty tied. And then I'm going to go with Priya, I think under 5 for Vivek and yeah. would be surprised if he does beat that. So now we'll be sure to put out some fun graphic or putting what everybody thinks. I think this is why I love this group of individuals is because our three panelists all had a different person that they thought were coming out on top. And I think it's incredible that we can all get together from different backgrounds, different opinions, and have a constructive conversation and really nerd out. Thank you guys for your time. I hope our listeners enjoyed this. And we'll be back to recap the Iowa caucuses at a later time. We want to thank you for listening to The Breakdown with Broad Corbett Becky. Before we go, show some love for your favorite podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on the platform where you listen. You can leave a review or give us a shout out on our website or across all social media platforms at BB Breakpod. The Breakdown with Broad Corbett Becky will return next week. Thank you again for listening.